I've today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. No question. Basically, the Lebanese lira lost 100% of its value today. And the global firestorm tonight after President Trump revealed his plans to halt funding to the World Health Organization in the middle of this global pandemic. Many countries said, we're going to listen to the WHO and they have problems the likes of which they cannot believe. Good morning. Hello. Welcome to Dispatch, a weekly podcast from Middle East Eye's global newsroom. My name is Mohammed Hassan. I'm joined today by three of my esteemed colleagues from the far stretches of the world to talk about this week's biggest stories from the Middle East and beyond. Today we're talking about Lebanon, a country whose economy just can't seem to get a break. Muslims in the US are changing the way they practice their faith amid the coronavirus pandemic. And while Donald Trump is picking a fight with the World Health Organization, his counterpart in the UK, Boris Johnson, is recovering from the virus himself. Joining me today are MEE reporter Heben Oster, our US editor Faisal Idrus, and MEE columnist and writer Peter Oborn. Of course, the world continues to face one of its greatest challenges in recent times. The number of coronavirus cases now stands at over 2 million, and more than 130,000 people have now died as a result. But its effects are also felt in the economies around the world. The IMF this week said the countries across the Middle East and North Africa are going to experience their biggest economic slump in more than four decades, with a plunge in oil prices and a spike in unemployment. One of those countries is Lebanon. Two months ago, it was facing economic collapse. Months of protests angry at government corruption and high austerity measures paralyzed the country, pushing an already drowning economic system to the edge. Food prices soared, and the banking sector imposed weekly allowances for people trying to access their own salaries. Hiba, if I can start with you, now that the pandemic has further shut down public life, can you paint a picture of what ordinary Lebanese people are going through right now? Well, people are already trying to um, come to grips that we're going through the country's worst economic crisis. And then they suddenly found themselves um, facing a pandemic, uh, a lockdown, um, um, unemployment, uh, because not everyone can work from home, obviously. Um, So basically, many people are left more vulnerable than before, and um, they have no idea what the future holds um, between the two crises. So you can imagine the level of anxiety felt around the country. Um, in normal times and in normal conditions, you know, being in lockdown and uh, stuck at home or not being able to work is enough to push you towards um, stress and, and depression and all of that. But people are already uh, feeling that. So now this is um, the situation has worsened. Now, just a, a few months ago, you know, the protest movement that kicked off back in October that really shut down a lot of how the economy in, in Lebanon, especially the day-to-day functioning of it, um, was working. And that had a massive impact on, on people's lives. Prices soared, uh, their access to, to money uh, was made more difficult. Is the same thing happening now with, the, with people being stuck at home? Now everyone, like there's a curfew and everyone is at home, um, unless you're an, uh, an essential worker. Before that, you can find ways to go to work. Not everything closed down. Uh, there might have been some roadblocks. Uh, maybe uh, some people weren't able to go to work in some areas for a few days, but it wasn't like this. Um, and some people um, now have lost their jobs because they can't go to work because of the curfew unless they break it and they might face fines. Um, so now people who 
who get paid when they go to work are now not getting paid, which means are not able to uh, uh, buy the things that they need as much as they were able to before um, the coronavirus spread around the country. And by the way, most of the uh, dollar withdrawals have been suspended. There are no virtually no dollars in the country. So people are, have no means of accessing their dollar salaries anymore? No, no. And if you want to get dollars, you have to buy them. And uh, on the black market, it's now double what the government's saying. So now it's, it's instead of being 1,500 to the dollar, it's 3,000, which is making everything more expensive. When we saw people coming out onto the streets end of last year, they were angry at the way the government was handling the economy. They were angry at high prices, high taxes, uh, you know, not being able to access basic government services. Uh, now that everything has shut down, now that everybody is confined to their homes, what has happened to that protest movement? Well, during the months of uprising, um, traditional rulers and parties have lost some of their hold over people. But now the ring class and the patronage system have they have benefited immensely from the coronavirus crisis and the, the economic collapse. And they are now on the offensive again. Um, they're using their old tactics of providing food and services to their own communities. They, they're sending their own cleaning crew, uh, crews to sanitize the streets, for example. The things that we were able to have an impact on, such as the, the, the hold that the um, traditional parties had over people, were now, do you feel like the old system is... is coming back slowly again. Um, they feel bolder to do that, maybe. If people get hungry and they find a hand to feed them, it would, it would take more time for the anger to spill over again, maybe as forcefully as it had in October and the months that followed that. Well, that said, many activists and some well-known and respected economists, Hamad Speak, for example, they're on, on social media trying to uh, highlight the corruption of the Lebanese government and the banks. Some observers believe that the next wave of the popular movement in Lebanon after the coronavirus crisis uh, might be more violent than um, the October uprising. And others see that the, the more the economy collapses, the more the government loses its powers. I mean, based on the on our World Bank analysis, over 40% of the population could soon live uh, below the poverty line. Um, but, mm. and, but the coronavirus crisis uh, has accelerated the effects of the economic crash. And uh, already some people have either uh, been pushed to the, uh, below the poverty line or are heading there. If we move to the United States now, which continues to be the global hotspot for the spread of the virus, with more than 600,000 reported cases and close to 30,000 deaths. New York in particular and immigrant communities in places like Queens seem to be the worst hit. Faisal, if I can go to you, what are we seeing in New York right now? The situation uh, in New York is pretty dire right now. Um, what we're seeing is, you know, mounting deaths and mounting infections, you know, by the day. But for a lot of the communities that we've actually spoken to, it's exposed what they already knew to be true. And when I mean communities, I'm referring here to communities of colour. You know, the coronavirus uh, pandemic was expected to come along and impact the US at some point. But what it's exposed is and laid bare is the, is the fissures of an unequal society. 
you know the situation in New York right now is is is, is especially as you mentioned in Queens it has been has been has been has been dire. A lot of immigrant communities, you know, who are already working in the city are underpaid. Um, they often live in cramped neighborhoods, and they lack access to quality healthcare insurance. But in the last two months, what we've seen is you know poor management and leadership from the White House, and this has basically meant that a lot of these communities, a lot of these individuals, families are not able to come along and look after themselves and, and their loved ones. And the impact of this is actually going to be felt in the days and weeks moving ahead. We've seen and we've noticed that how a lot of people aren't able to actually get tested. And what this means is that how they're no longer eligible or they're uneligible to go, uh, claim benefits. So if you've ever been to Times Square and you've seen the falafel stands, the biryani carts, the, the barbershops, the bodegas, you know, the usual places where immigrants are, you know, tend to work, these spaces are barren and empty. Leading on from this, once this pandemic you know does uh, does ease and once conditions do improve, the impact for communities across the Arab, across the Muslim world, will be devastating. A lot of these people tend to send money back home remittances. Uh, you know, Bangladesh, in and around about 10-15% of its economy is, is its GDP is reliant upon remittances. Similar thing with Nepal. Similar thing with Egypt and Pakistan. And a lot of people from those countries are living and working in the US and in particular in New York. So when you have low paid workers who are contributing heavily to their families back home, unable to, 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 to live, to provide, the, the effects will be devastating worldwide. And you've got to remember, you know, between January and April, around about 20 million Americans have lost their jobs. You know, these are unprecedented figures. Now, an another way that some of these communities, especially the more vulnerable communities, are being affected is, surprisingly, the way that they practice their religion, religious practices. Muslims in particular, you know, we're talking about the month of Ramadan starting next week. What is this going to mean for them? So a lot of mosques uh, across the U.S. Uh, shut up shop uh, last month. Uh, following a similar track as in as in as in the UK and in Western Europe, and uh, much of the world, um, so mosques have already been shut. A lot of people have actually shifted their practices to the digital sphere. So a lot of imams or lema have started giving talks online. But a mosque is a central place, um, not just in the Arab and Muslim world, but globally. People go to the mosque to you know uh, meet up with family and friends. You know, a lot of mosque uh, services in the U.S. in particular actually provide free food and education for, uh, you know, under uh, impoverished communities. So mosque closures are having a really, you know, a devastating impact on local communities. Um, some mosques have tried to, you know, fill that void by still going off and having, you know, parcel drop-offs where people can come in and collect food. Some community centres have, have, have got volunteers together and these volunteers have begun going out and, you know, producing face masks for frontline health workers who are in dire need. So there have been mosques in Cincinnati, mosques in Washington, who have actually been producing, you know, hundreds if not thousands of masks to, uh, you know, help and protect frontline health workers. So there has been you know, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of community spirit. But moving forward, um, Ramadan is going to be a big test. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of imams have already said that they will not be uh, opening mosques for tarawih prayers or for you know qiyamul layl. So this is going to impact and it's going to leave a, a sour taste in a sour taste in some people's mouths because you know Ramadan usually does consist of you know those kinds of acts of worship you know the nightly worship. Um, so it is going to be a very different Ramadan from previous years. 
But what we're seeing, especially in the context of the US, is an amazing community spirit. So uh, places of worship, yeah, they've, they've really brought the community together and galvanized a lot of people. Now, speaking of that community spirit, there were actually, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people from Arab and Muslim communities that were campaigning for Bernie Sanders in particular, the US presidential candidate. Now, one of the big stories this week is him fi- uh, officially withdrawing his candidacy for president. We know the people that you've been speaking to that, that might have been you know on his campaign or that were very excited about him. How are they feeling right now? So the general mood in and amongst the Arab and Muslim community is one of dejection. Many are really upset, really uh, annoyed. They would have wished that Bernie would have persevered in the campaign and pushed forward and and continued challenging Biden up until the eleventh hour. So the Arabs and uh, and 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 the Muslim diaspora that we've spoken to have generally felt as if, for them, this election is lost. You know, should it come to November and, you know, it's going to be a Biden, you know, uh, Trump ticket, possibly they'll choose the lesser of, you know, of the two evils and they might decide to, you know, uh, uh, put um, uh, Biden's name on the ballot. But it seems that a lot of communities are dejected simply because Biden isn't a progressive. His foreign policy um, isn't representative of what they actually would like to see moving forward. They wouldn't wish to see, you know, a, a pro-Israeli uh, leader in the White House, as we've seen over the last four years. They would want to see a shift when it comes to strategies in the in the in the Arab and Muslim world. But more importantly, when it comes to domestic issues, um, you know, people would like to see, you know, Medicare rolled out. They would like to go off and see, you know, um, uh, uh, big companies, massive, uh, uh, you know, multinationals playing uh, paying adequate levels of tax. They would want to see, you know, um, affordable income. They would want to see, you know, real changes that would impact all segments of society. And when it comes to Biden, he's pretty much much of the same. You know, he's not somebody who's going to shake up the order. He's not an anti-capitalist. He's not an anti-neoliberal. He's very much somebody who embodies, you know, um, different than Trump, don't get me wrong, but he embodies much of what Obama stood for. And people in the US have been crying out for real change. So, yeah, there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of unhappiness and unease right now. We regret the decision of the President of the United States to order a hold in funding to the World Health Organization. When we're divided, the virus exploits the cracks between us. We're committed to serving the world's people and to accountability for the resources with which we're entrusted. Before we leave the U.S. in an unprecedented move this week, we saw a back and forth happening between U.S. President Donald Trump and the World Health Organization. And then Donald Trump announced that he was cutting all U.S. funding to that international body. Peter Oborn, if I can turn to you, what do you make of Trump's move this week? I think that Trump is doing what he's always done, is America first, but he is bringing... Um, America into disrepute uh, and are moving it away from the international community. And of course, at the same time, behind it is the um, what looks like the smear that somehow the Chinese have been manipulating the WHO and WHO is is therefore some form of uh, Chinese stooge uh, uh, organization. I think there is a problem with Trump. We've also seen him collapse his, his fiasco uh, news conferences and looking from uh, from this side of the Atlantic, I think Trump is falling to pieces, um, and he's 
can't really be taken seriously anymore insofar as he ever could. Uh, and if coronavirus looks looks from the perspective of uh, this of Britain uh, as destroying the um, wiping out his chances also of winning an election victory in um, this November because the mishandling of coronavirus has been so gross. Now, if we can move to the UK, his uh, you know Donald Trump's friend and Prime Minister Boris Johnson has had a quite a different uh, experience and a, quite a rougher uh, road over the last uh, week or so. You know, last week we spoke about his uh, him going into intensive care with you know after contracting the coronavirus, he seems to be on his way to recovery now. But he's come out praising the NHS. His tone seems to have changed uh, quite drastically. Do you think he's had a change of heart? There's certainly been a uh, an attempt, massive attempt, by the uh, media machine around Mr Johnson to project a different attitude to the NHS, uh, which was the one put out by the Conservatives uh, before this awful, uh, uh, awful pandemic. Uh, and Mr Johnson won a great deal of, of praise um, when he came out of uh, hospital. He put on a suit and he and he pledged himself to the NHS, uh, and, and I think that went down as a whole as a, as a, you know very well. There are reasons to be sceptical, um, simply that you know that the Mr Johnson and his senior cabinet colleagues, including Matthew Hancock, the health secretary, voted against pay rises uh, for nurses uh, and for doctors in the doctor strike. Um, there's a the Tories enforced austerity on the NHS for, um, you know, for a decade. Um, is I think some of the critics are unfair. I mean, they they never cut spending on the NHS, but then they they did protect real spending on the NHS uh, throughout the austerity years. Nevertheless, um, the Conservatives are accused of being the party which has neglected the NHS and whether there has been some sort of rethink that is what Mr Johnson's supporters and Mr Johnson's uh, himself it seems to be saying now another uh, angle you know I guess to take on the frontline workers many of whom you know uh, Johnson was uh, in praise of this week is that a lot of these frontline workers come from immigrant backgrounds a lot of them found themselves feeling quite vulnerable during the Brexit uh, saga and of course you know Boris Johnson went into the last election talking very specifically about curbing immigration what what of these people now? What must they be thinking now that suddenly they're being praised by somebody that you know was threatening to deport them just months ago? This is a really important question, and it's a somber question as well. If you look at the first eight uh, doctors to die in the NHS, were all without exception. Uh, um, am I right in saying immigrants? And a lot of them were Muslims, um, and the same applies uh, to nurses. So. Immigrants play a huge role in the NHS. This is something which Vote Leave, uh, when it campaigned for the um, for Brexit, failed to acknowledge. They 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 attacked immigrants. They said that the NHS couldn't, uh, you know, were being swamped by immigrants. But they 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 never really acknowledged properly the huge role which immigrants have pre- played in making NHS work. And now suddenly when the the nation is sick with the pandemic, uh, they are starting to praise up carers. Now, the, the big question lurking behind the question you asked is, are they going to change policy? 
Are they going to change the rights of migrant workers in Britain? I mean, although obviously we celebrate Mr Johnson's recovery, congratulate him on it, um, what I worry about is the public, public relations machine surrounding the Prime Minister and in Downing Street to, to try and get maximum political advantage out of his illness. And um, if that's the case, I think we, he, they've got to, you know, they, they've got to be sincere about what they're saying and we've got to see, uh, see proper, a, a real change in policy regarding the NHS and a new attitude, please, to to migrants, immigrants who've come in to serve this country in the most wonderful and heroic way. In the last seven days, I have, of course, seen the pressure that the NHS is under. I've seen the personal courage, not just of the doctors and nurses, but of everyone, the cleaners, the cooks, the healthcare workers of every description, physios, radiographers, pharmacists, who've kept coming to work kept putting themselves in harm's way. Before I leave you guys to, to, to go off into your, your busy days, I wanted to check in with you how you're doing on an individual level. Obviously, all of us are still, you know, weeks or months in some cases and in uh, isolation at home. Uh, our lives have changed quite drastically. Uh, Peter, if I can start with you, how are you doing personally? Look, I'm very privileged actually i'm thinking i we we have a house in the country we've got a garden um i'm here with my wife and uh two two of our younger two youngest children and we um we're getting on fine and it's very unreal because um you know it's, it's a fe life feels very odd uh and you can't get on with life in, 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 as you could and it's my child my youngest child it's very upsetting, actually, for her, really, not to be able to take her GCSEs. But it's we're managing. I'm very conscious of people who it's much tougher for, who are in flats in cities, um, and the, the you know the depression and the isolation and the domestic abuse which people will be suffering. You know, it's a very very odd time. Faisal, uh, you're somebody that is, you know, constantly moving from place to place in, in different countries in different months. Uh, how does it feel being stuck in London? It's um, it's a welcome change. Um, yeah, no, um, I wish I was actually uh, traveling and on the road again, but definitely it's... Um, it's, it's it's refreshing to basically be somewhere because um, prior to this, of course, I was in Tunisia for a short stint and being in Tunisia and not having health insurance was slightly jarring. Um, not being aware of whether or not I would be, you know, um, liable to actually pay for, you know, my, my, my hospital treatment should I get sick. So um, I am, uh, you know, um, pleasantly surprised and, and actually quite, quite, quite chuffed to basically be back home and, you know, be, be in a position where in which I am, you know, similar to, to Peter, in a position of privilege where should I fall sick, I have the NHS to fall back on. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it still is, you know, uh, quite quite eerie walking down the streets and basically just seeing people covered up in face masks and um, you know, yeah, just shying away and sometimes even crossing the road. I'm not sure if it's my beard that prompts them to do that or if it's the risk of the coronavirus. But yeah, it's uh, it still is interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I've been guilty of that as well. When I when I see people, I, I tend to cross the road myself. Um, Hiba, what about you? You're, you're you're somebody that's quite you know isolating at the moment. You're quite far away from the rest of your family. How has it been the last few weeks? Um, 
it's been surreal. I agree with Peter. Um, it's a, it's a very unreal time, and um, but yeah, we're we're definitely more privileged than other people, and you can't help but be aware of that. Especially that we spend the whole day reading about other people who are not coping as well as you are, or are not in living in situations that are comfortable or um, uh, or situations that might make this easier for them. Um, for me, the the most difficult thing is. Um, feeling very far away from home. Um, it's, it's very weird. Even, yeah, like you guys said, like walking down the street, like uh, um, people would move away from you and from each other as if every person is a potential source of contagion. And, and you do the same thing. And, it's, um, and that has been normalized too. No one is offended. Uh, they actually welcome it if you do that. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's a very weird time to to be alive it really is it really is uh and and i think you know it'll be interesting as a social experiment to see how once all of this is over we are all socially integrating back into society whether things uh, are able to re you know really go back to the way they were before Thank you so much to Heba, Faisal, and Peter for joining me on this week's episode of Dispatch. You can find all our episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Please follow us, subscribe, and give us a cheeky rating. It goes a long way. Of course, you can always keep up to date with all of our news coverage that the team is working so hard on every single day by heading along to our website at MiddleEastEye.net. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>